How many of you have done something that you weren't doing before uh, because of last week and you're, you're moving forward? You're memorizing the Word or you're reading, you're back in the Bible. Is there anybody, anybody doing anything? Okay, yeah, good. Well, I want to encourage you. Keep going and uh, keep making progress because there's a huge payoff in drawing close to the Lord. And so I want to definitely encourage you in that. And I want to encourage people that are here for the first time. Uh, I know that I've seen some of you that are returning visitors from the mainland, some that are returning that... Uh, uh, we haven't seen for a little while at church, and we're just so glad you're here. I hope you feel absolutely comfortable and welcome. But we're going to continue our study in the book of Acts this morning, and so I'd like to encourage you to turn there to Acts chapter 6 as we look at uh, Stephen, a profile in courage. And this is part one because next week we'll pick up, pick up the second part of the text um, as it unfolds in chapter 7. But for today, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 8 to the end of the chapter. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded men to say, we have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like that of an angel. Father, we thank you for this text this morning, and God, we're crying out to you for understanding and insight, Lord. God, I'm, I'm praying that you would fill this place with your glory. I'm praying that you'd fill our hearts with your presence and with faith and with your spirit. God, I'm praying that you would Transform us, God, a little bit more because of our time here this morning into the image of your son, Jesus. And Father, I know that everyone has things happening in their life and some may be distressed this morning or anxious, distracted. And Lord, I pray that you would cause them to be lifted up and built up as a result of the study and the word of God this morning. Let your word go out and accomplish the purpose for which you're sending it. And God, we're looking forward to it. We want to know you more. God, we want to know your heart. We want to know your ways. And so, Father, here we are. You're the teacher and we're the students. Teach us this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. I think as I consider the topic of courage, that it's one of the most noble character qualities that a man or woman can exhibit. Ernest Hemingway defined courage as grace under pressure. C.S. Lewis said that courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at its testing point. And I think my favorite definition of courage is from my good friend John Wayne, who said that courage is being scared to death and saddling up anyway. Every one of us have to exhibit it, in some form or another. Sometimes we exhibit it when we share the Lord with people. 
Sometimes we exhibit it when we are in a conflict with a friend or a spouse and, and we want to go a certain direction, but we demonstrate courage by taking the higher ground of humbling ourselves and being soft and repentant, willing to change. Some of you may have even exhibited courage coming to church today. Just coming, just coming by yourself without your spouse is an act of courage. Or coming for the first time to a church or maybe having been gone for a long time and then coming back to church. These things take courage. And I'll share with you that last night I, I actually had to have the church pray for me because for me to come last night and teach was an act of courage because I've been going through spiritual warfare for the last three or four days and I felt like so weak and so incapable of speaking and I felt so needy and I really, if somebody had said, would you like me to speak, you know, last night, I would have said, would you? <laughs> and so we have these various degrees of courage and by the way, they prayed for me and I feel a lot better today. Um, God has really helped to push back the darkness and I'm gonna pray for that for you today too because I know that the enemy is constantly looking to weaken the church and weaken individual Christians. And uh, some of you may even feel like I felt last night, and you may feel that way today. But I'm praying that God is going to strengthen you today and enable you to be courageous. And so we find that courage is, a, is an enormous part of the Christian life. In fact, uh, we admire it so much that, for instance, one of my favorite articles to read whenever I get my hands on a Reader's Digest, what do I immediately turn to? I don't know what you go to, but I'm looking for drama in real life. You know, you remember that? That little section? I'm looking for those heroic stories. They've even got a section of t today's heroes, and they've got this little thing about these people that take these, these heroic steps to save life or to help someone in need. And I'm drawn to that, and I think we're all drawn to it. Robert Kennedy, uh, obviously many years ago in, in 65, uh, wrote a book called Profiles in Courage where he recounted the stories of, of eight U.S. senators who stood in very difficult positions against the popular vote and against what people thought should happen and they stood for the right thing, for, for issues of principle. They did what was right rather than what was expedient. And so Robert Kennedy actually wrote a book on it and it became a Pulitzer Prize winning book because people were so inspired by these stories of these eight senators who unlike so many senators today seemed, you know, they were willing to take a stand on principle, on moral and ethical issues. Well, it was so popular that in 1989, the John F. Kennedy Library Foundation created a Profile and Courage Award. And every year they give out an award for a politician who doesn't get pushed along by the interest groups or the lobbyists, but simply stands on principle, on what's right, what's moral, and what's true. And that award is given every year. Why do we give awards for that? Because courage is uncommon. And yet I would suggest to you that it's not all that uncommon. Maybe the heroic acts of courage are uncommon. But I would suggest to you that every day you are demonstrating levels of courage. Getting up in the morning, sometimes just going to work is an act of courage. Sometimes just facing a conflict at work or in a family situation or simply getting up again and fixing another meal and doing the laundry and mowing the grass and taking care of whatever is your responsibility, those are acts of courage. And so what I want to encourage you with this morning is you're already acting courageously. But my message to you this morning is that I'm going to encourage you to be even more courageous. And part of what will help us in rising up to that level of courage is simply the example of one of the earliest New Testament men who demonstrated this kind of courage, and his name is Stephen. You'll recall from our study in chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, that Stephen was one of the men 
out of the some 20 to 30,000 new believers that he was selected out of this huge, massive group of people with seven others to become the administrators of business issues as it related to the church. And that freed up the apostles to take care of the preaching and teaching and prayer. Not that these other men didn't pray or preach, but that it freed up the disciples to focus their primary attention on that. And one of these men who was selected, which was an enormous honor and statement about the kind of man this was, was Stephen. And so we find that there, there are four qualities that I want to touch on briefly about his character that are mentioned in the text. We're backing up a little bit to ver verse 5. It says that he was full of faith. The word in Greek is pleureo. It means to be dominated by or controlled by either a person or a thing, or in this case, a character quality. So in essence, what the text is saying is that, is that Stephen was a man that was absolutely filled to the brim with faith in God. He was a man that put complete trust in God. Now, the Bible speaks of people who are full of all kinds of things, sometimes full of faith, sometimes full of doubt, sometimes full of joy, and sometimes full of sorrow sometimes full of hope and sometimes full of anxiety. And so you can be full of all kinds of things. And for most Christians, we would all say that we have a certain degree of faith that is in our hearts. But very few Christians can say that they're full of faith. Most of us are, you know, like percentages, like 60-40 or 70-30 or 80-20. We've got a certain amount of faith, but we've also got some doubt mixed in. But Stephen is described as a man who was full of faith. As I was thinking about this, I was thinking, what are the markers of faith? How do you know where you stand in your relationship with God when it comes to this issue of faith? Which, by the way, is kind of the beginning foundational point of everything else that made Stephen a courageous man. So if we want to be courageous men and women, whether it comes to witnessing or simply taking care of the, the, uh, the issues of life, then we need to be men and women who are growing in faith. So how, are the, what, how do we know what faith is and what is it marked by? What does it look like? Well, I think one thing that marks the life of faith is absolute confidence in God and his word. Absolute confidence. That means that we have read the word, that we know the word, that when we come into a situation that we haven't addressed before or been confronted with before, we go to the word and we say, God, what have you done in the past? How have you delivered previously the saints of God who have been in similar situations. What do you want me to do, Father? How can I come to you? And then we begin to develop this long history behind us of God's deliverance. And then we were able to say, you know, God, I've never faced a situation like this before. I don't even really know what to do, but my eyes are on you and I'm looking back at your faithfulness. And as I look forward, I realize that I can put my confidence in you. That is a marker of a man or woman that has faith. They face the uncertainty with confidence because they know that God is true, that God is sovereign, that God is loving. And so they're able to face difficult and even unknown situations with a degree of confidence and trust in God. I think another marker of a man or woman that has faith is that they have peace and contentment regardless of the situation. Why? Well, for the reason I just mentioned a minute ago, they are absolutely convinced that God is loving. And they're absolutely convinced that God is powerful and sovereign and good. And as a result, they know that whatever happens, it's going to advance God's purposes in their life. Someone that's full of faith is a man or woman that's already acknowledged that their life is no longer their own. 
So the agenda is no longer, how can I help God make me happy? No. The agenda of a faith-filled believer is, God, my life is no longer my own. How can I make a blessing out of my life to you? How can my life bring glory and magnify your name? And so they're able to face difficult challenges and uncertainties with peace and contentment, whatever the situation, and with joy and praise because they know the character of God. So those are some things that I've noted that, that are evidences of faith, confidence in God and his word, and peace and contentment, whatever the circumstances. So then the question becomes, how can we grow in that? Well, the Bible tells us very clearly how we can grow in faith. In Romans 10, 17, it says, says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So in essence, if, if we're to grow in faith that leads to a courageous life, then we need to be men and women who know the Bible. We read it every day. We meditate on it. We do some journaling, do a little scripture memory, whatever the Lord leads you to do, but we're allowing a face-to-face -face encounter with God to take place on a regular basis so that we begin to have confidence in who he is. And our priorities are established based on the word of God. And when we face difficulty, we have a history of a knowledge of the word of God so that we're like, the Holy Spirit brings, brings it to mind and we're like, oh, I remember a situation that was similar that one of the saints in the past faced. And we go there and we find encouragement to live a courageous life. The second thing that helps us to build our faith is found for us in Matthew 7, 24, when Jesus is talking about the contrast between the man who built his house on the rock and the one that built it on the sand. And in chapter 7, verse 24, he says that the person who not only hears the word but puts it into practice is the one that will be solid, the courageous one, the one whose uh, house will not be blown down. And so those two things are so helpful. Simply reading the word of God and then putting it into practice will help to build your faith. And so Stephen was a man who was full of faith in God and confidence in him and peace and joy in every situation, even the very challenging one that he's going to be facing in our text today. The second thing that we find about Stephen was that he was full of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, Acts chapter 6 tells us that he was chosen because of these qualities, full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit. It's one of the qualities, by the way, that demonstrates someone that's truly born again. We already know that on the day of Pentecost that the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit, but the Bible also tells us in uh, Ephesians 5.18 that we're to be regularly filled again. So it's almost like we leak, and the Bible says that we need to get filled up again. How do we do that? Simply by yielding our life to God, finding out what he's doing. It says to be led by the Spirit of God. How are we led? Well, the Holy Spirit, by the way, if you didn't remember, is the one that authored this book under the inspiration of God. God spoke, the Holy Spirit worked through the disciples, through the apostles, and what we have here is the heart of God as delivered by the Holy Spirit. So if you want to be a man or woman led by the Holy Spirit, then be a man or woman that reads what he was given by God through the apostles to give to us that we might know his direction and his heart. And then he tells us as well in Galatians 5.25 that to be full of the Holy Spirit is to be a man or woman who keeps in step with the Holy Spirit. And I've shared this with you before, but the only way I know how to keep in step with someone is to kind of be like checking where we are. When my wife and I go on a walk, you know, I'm like, are we together? 
Is she ahead? Am I behind? Usually I go faster than my wife, so I have to keep looking at her to, she'll say, slow down. And I'm like, okay. And so I'll slow down. And I say, sometimes we get in these little things. Why don't you go faster? If I go slower, you seems to slow down even more. But the point is, is that I have to kind of watch my wife to keep in step with her. And, and as Christians, if you want to be full of the Holy Spirit, one of the evidences of that experience and that relationship is that we are communicating and watching what's happening that the Holy Spirit is doing so that we're not getting ahead or falling behind. And the only way I know how to do that is to look. So I'm looking up all the time. Holy Spirit, am I on track? Am I with you? Are, am I ahead? Am I behind? What do you want me to do? Bring the words to mind. Fill my heart with your thoughts. And so we find that Stephen is a man that's just full of the Holy Spirit. We also find that he was full of God's grace in verse 8. When it's referring to God's grace, it's a divine, sovereign power and favor. But when it's a reference to a man, it means just loving kindness. The guy was just a nice guy. But he was a nice guy because of God's spirit working in him. And the Bible says that he wasn't just kind of nice, but he was full of the Holy Spirit. This is really inspiring to me because when I take the giftings test, mercy is like way down for me. I have to really work at being merciful. That's something I have to concentrate on and, and be aware of because I know that my natural propensity is not to be as merciful as maybe someone else is. But, but Stephen was a man that was just full of God's mercy as he was walking with the Lord. And next week as we study the text, we'll, we'll see just how merciful Stephen was because the Bible says as he was being stoned by his murderous accusers, he breathed his last breath praying a prayer that God would not hold the sin against them. I mean, that's mercy. How can a guy do that? Well, it's the divine mercy of God. His life was full of loving kindness. The last quality that we're told about Stephen is that he was full of God's power. It's this dunamis power, this explosive divine power for doing supernatural things. You know, as I thought about this, I thought, I know people that have power, and I know people who are very loving, but I don't know very many people who have power and that kind of love together. And I thought, what a wonderful combination to have. And I thought, what a wonderful God we have because that's exactly what God is like. God is absolutely full of divine power, but he's also absolutely full of loving kindness. And I was really challenged by this personally. I want to be a man that has power in God and I also want to have fullness of loving kindness in my dealings with people. And Stephen was this kind of a man. He was full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, full of this loving kindness, compassion, and full of power. An amazing combination of things. And the thing I want to challenge you with is that Stephen was nothing but an ordinary man. There was nothing supernatural about him except that God was at work in his life. And he was fully yielded to God. So these are qualities that we shouldn't look at and say, wow, that's, you know, inspirational, but I could never be like that. What we should be saying is, wow, that's inspirational. I want to be like that. I know I can't do it on my own, but God, I'm asking you today to make me like that. Full of God, full of faith, full of his spirit, full of loving kindness, and full of power. And because of this lifestyle that he was leading, God used him to do great wonders and miraculous signs. We've talked about signs and wonders before, that signs point to something and wonders create the sense of awe. 
that causes people to be attracted to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so these signs and wonders were actually a direct answer to prayer from Acts chapter 4, verse 29 and 30, when the disciples, after being persecuted and put in jail, cried out to God and said, God, bring it on, you know? They weren't wilting flowers, you know? They weren't like, oh, God, you know, don't let anything bad happen to us. Maybe we should find a new venue that's not quite so dangerous. No, they said, Lord, now that you've delivered your servants, bring it on, and we want to see even more of your power and more miraculous signs and we want to see more conversions. We want to see people set free. And of course, God answered that prayer in a very powerful way. But every time these miracles happen and any time the people start getting excited about God, opposition comes. And that's what we find in verse 9. I, I, th- just these two, two words are very powerful to me. It says, opposition arose. This is just Satan. This is his plan. Anytime a man or woman steps forward and walks with God, there is going to be opposition. If you have any leadership capacity whatsoever as a believer, you will encounter opposition. And I know people that have told me, you know, I don't want to be a leader. I don't want to have any position of, of responsibility because I've watched what happens to Christians when they, when they step up to the plate. And I'm like, well, you're absolutely right. You're right. There is opposition. There is challenge. But the benefit of facing opposition is that we get strong in the Lord. God is training us for warfare. God is training us to be godly men and women. And that training takes place in the process of opposition. I like what, um, what, what's been said by Hamilton, maybe. He said, don't be afraid of opposition. Remember, a kite rises against, not with the wind. And I would suggest to you that one of the benefits of opposition in the Christian life is that you will not rise, you will not grow, you cannot mature without opposition. And so Jesus promised it in uh, Luke chapter 12. He also promised it in Luke 21. He said, don't be surprised when these things come because you're going to be dragged before the courts and before the Sanhedrin and before the religious leaders. And he says, don't worry about what to say because I'm going to be speaking through you by my spirit. Don't be afraid. Expect it. Don't be surprised by it. James says, don't be surprised by the various trials you're suffering as though some strange thing are happening to you, but rejoice and be glad. Well, why? Because the fruit of that opposition helps us to grow in our walk with God. And I faced a lot of opposition and, and challenges over the years, like all of us have. And what I, would, what I would tell you, and I think you would say the same, is that I would never give up what happened in my life. I would never want to uh, bypass the challenges because I have grown so much in my walk and faith and trust in God because of those problems. I have seen God. I have experienced God. I have witnessed his power and his grace and his love and his ability to deliver. And I would never want to take any of those things away because of the benefit that I've received as a result of trusting him through the midst of them and seeing his deliverance. It's a wonderful thing to see, to be a part of. It reminds me really of the old battles of, of David and of Joshua. And we see those as very tangible, physical manifestations of the warfare in spiritual places. And we think, well, we're never going to have a battle like that. No, you have them every single day. And when you come through and God delivers, it's this explosive experience of rejoicing in God. And so that's what God has for us when we face opposition. So I want to encourage you because everyone here in some arena of your life is facing opposition. It might be in ministry, might be your spouse, might be your children, 
Might be something happening at the workplace and you're thinking, I just wish I could get out of this. I wish I could just have peace. I wish it was over. And what I want to tell you is that God is training you to be powerful in his kingdom. And the only way to experience it is through opposition. Kites rise against the wind, not with the wind. Well, he tells us who these antagonists are. They're members of the synagogue of the freedmen. These are Jews, by the way. They weren't uh, spiritually free. They were simply physically free. Uh, quite a few of the Jews in 68 BC were conquered by Pompey in Jerusalem. And they were exiled, as so often happened. They were, they were taken out of Jerusalem and they were exiled to Rome. And they spent generations there. Finally, they were set free. But they didn't want to migrate back to Jerusalem because they had businesses and homes and family connections and relationships and they were fine living in Rome. So they stayed in Rome, but they were ancestrally Jewish by, by their uh, upbringing. And so they wanted to continue to worship in Jerusalem. And so they would make the trek for the three festivals every year, the pilgrimage back to Jerusalem. And uh, if you remember the story about Mary and Joseph, you remember how no room in the inn and all that? Well, they wanted to have their own place. So these people from these different countries who spoke, spoke a different language than Hebrew or Aramaic would build their own synagogue within Jerusalem, and that would be their gathering place. And all the people from their area, their neck of the woods up in Rome, would come to that synagogue, and they would have a place that was meant for them to stay. They wouldn't have to worry about making hotel arrangements or anything like that. It's like they bought a timeshare, if you want to put it in those terms. So they had their own timeshare in Jerusalem, and they knew they could come to it. And so they would come, and they would speak their own language and everything, but they would go and worship together at the temple. And so we have the, the, uh, the evidence and the information here that these are Jews, uh, but they're the freedmen who were set free after the conquering of Pompeii uh, when they had been taken to Rome. They're Jews from Cyrene and Alexandria, and uh, some of these names may kind of ring a bell, but remember Simon of Cyrene? He's the guy that was carrying the cross of Christ, was forced to carry the cross uh, as Jesus was going to Golgotha. Uh, Alexandria is modern-day Egypt, and this is where Apollos came from, one of the great, great, courageous teachers in the New Testament church. And then we have Jews from Cilicia and Asia. And Cilicia is, uh, is the city uh, where Tarsus was. And we know that Tarsus is the town that, uh, that Saul the Apostle, later to be called Paul the Apostle, was born. And we know from the text that we're going to look at next week that, that Saul was uh, probably a part of the Sanhedrin at this point, if not an up-and-coming protege to the Sanhedrin. And he was there during this whole encounter that we're going to read and talk about this morning. And so these freedmen who evidently uh, Stephen had been preaching the gospel, telling them about the fulfillment of the law and Moses and the whole Old Testament covenant, and that fulfillment has all been accomplished through Christ, and he's preaching the gospel, and these freedmen begin, the Bible says, to argue with Stephen. They begin to argue with him. Anybody ever been in an argument here? No, that's really good. I got one no and a lot of laughing. Okay, so there's probably, most of us know that, uh, that if, you, if you're living and breathing and you got blood coursing through your veins and you have any connection with anybody, any people whatsoever, I guess you could probably argue with yourself. I've had a couple of those arguments before. Uh, but mostly we're arguing with people. You know that that can be very destructive and not very productive. And I want to take a, a moment to sideline off the text here and take you to 2 Timothy. I'd like you to turn there if you have a Bible. 2 Timothy chapter 2, one of the best texts in the entire Bible on how to, how to deal with arguing, how to deal with a situation that comes up in your life 
where you are tempted to get into kind of a, a, um, a conflict with another person over a disagreement. And this can, can apply to a ministry situation. It can apply to a marriage situation. It can apply to working with your kids or a coworker. There is such wisdom in this text. And I'm just going to read it to you briefly and make a couple of comments and then we'll move on. But in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 23, Paul the Apostle is speaking to Timothy, his young protege, a young pastor, and he's advising him on what to do when arguments come up in the church um, and in his life. He says, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments. So here's the first key in terms of how to argue properly. Number one is choose your battles. And I'm trying to teach my kids that, is that don't argue and get into a scuffle over nothing. If you're going to argue, make sure it's over something of consequence. Don't even go down the road of, of fighting and nitpicking over small things. And this is really good advice for married couples. Most of the conflicts we get in are not worth fighting over. They're, they're hills we should have never climbed. We shouldn't go there. And so the first bit of advice that, uh, that Paul has for this young pastor is choose your battles. The second is um, the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Not quarrel. It means to get in these verbal scuffles with people. Instead, he must be kind to everyone. It's the same word charis, this loving kindness that Stephen demonstrated. Isn't this wonderful? He says, be kind to everyone, even to people that don't agree with you, even, that, even with people that see something from a different perspective. And in Stephen's case, even with people that are intentionally harming you, slandering you, and even lying about you. He says, be kind to everyone. And then he says, you need to be able to teach. So when you are in an argument, one of the things that the Bible says is very important to do this properly so that it ends up bringing glory to God and peace to your family or to your work situation or to the church is that we need to be able to teach what the Bible says about a situation like that. The, the thing that I'm never influenced by is just, well, this is what I think. Well, this is what I think. Because you could get a thousand opinions on the same issue. What I want to know is what does God think? Because that influences me. And when we have a, a disagreement or anything, one of the most effective things that we can do, we're not like getting ammo. I, I, I want to make sure that everybody understands. This isn't ammo that we're getting, but we're going to the Word of God for wisdom on how to solve a conflict. And so we go to the Word and we find out what does God say about this particular topic? And then we present that to a person because that has far greater influence than simply my opinion. But if I come with the word of God and said, hey, I know this is difficult. I know it may be unusual. I may, I, there may not be a lot of churches that are exercising this activity or this responsibility or whatever, but this is what the Bible says. Let's do what God says. Let's honor the Lord. It's his idea. It's his church. It's his marriage. It's his, they're his kids, whatever it is. And then go with what God says. So we need to be able to teach. You don't need to go to seminary for this. You just need to, to read the word. Explore what God says about that topic. And then it says not resentful. This is so important when you're in an argument because one of the things that can build up in you if you leave that situation and you don't feel resolved is to feel resentment. Anybody ever felt that? They didn't take my advice. I'm mad at them. They didn't like my idea. Boy, I'm ticked off, you know. And then we start thinking of all the things that we don't like about that person and they start to pile up. That's resentment. And the Bible says that when we are dealing with a conflict, it's very important. It's so important that he actually, you know, writes about it here. And he says, one of the things we've got to be very careful of when we're in a conflict is not to become resentful. We need to keep loving, keep seeing the best, 
Keep encouraging. In verse 25, more advice. He says, those who oppose him, in other words, if you're in a conflict with someone, that person you feel is opposing your position, your ideas, your, your thoughts, your, your um, uh, experience, then you must gently instruct that person. I love the words that are used here. Not forcibly, you know, yell or scream or, or uh, anything like that, but gently, with respect and love, instruct that person. Listen to this. In the hope that God will lead them to repentance. This is such a key thing because sometimes I think that we feel the burden is upon us to change a person's opinion and to inform them and to educate them and make them come to their senses. But it says that we, not, we need to do this gently so that God, that God will bring them to repentance. And it goes on to say that they will escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will need to be very careful about assigning that to somebody you're arguing with. You've been taken captive by Satan himself, you know. Well, we, wanna, we don't want to do that. But, uh, but sometimes it's evident that somebody has been taken captive. And the best way to reach a person like this is through gentle, loving, kind instruction and through prayer because God ultimately has to be the one that delivers that person. But here Stephen is. He's being slanders. He's being falsely accused. These people begin to argue with him. But it says in verse 10 that these, the Sanhedrin, made up, made up of 70 guys, couldn't stand up to his wisdom. I love that. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 1.25 that the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. And so here is Stephen, one guy against 70 highly educated men, and they couldn't stand up to his wisdom. Why? Because Stephen was simply preaching God's wisdom. And they couldn't stand up to it. And it also says, and they couldn't stand up to the spirit by which Stephen was preaching. They couldn't stand up to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says in Isaiah 54, 17, that no weapon forged against you will prevail and you will refute every tongue that accuses you. How do we do that? We do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, full of loving kindness, and yet full of power that can't be refuted by men. Well, it's pretty obvious to me, uh, based on verse 11, that, that uh, Stephen won the debate because the next tactic the opponents use against him is slander. We see it in politics all the time. If you can't win in the arena of ideas, then attack relentlessly, even if you have to lie. And if you say it long enough and loud enough, it sticks sometimes. Far too often, in my opinion. But that's what they began to do. And so the strategy of the antagonists against Stephen, the Sanhedrin, was to secretly persuade men to slander him. Can you believe this? These are religious leaders. I mean, this is like, how low can a person go to collectively among 70? It's bad enough when, you know, I have thoughts. I mean, we all have thoughts. I should do this, I should do that. And it's like, no, that's wrong. You know, and I go through this little, I have my argument in my head with myself. But, but to actually come out and say, you know what? As a church, we're going to do something really evil in order to get something done that we think is important. And then to have a big church meeting and, and clue everybody in and say, we're going to, do you see how wicked this is? The, the level of disgrace that this, group of men had come to in their opposition of the ministry of Christ. 
And so they suborned perjury, which basically means they hired false witnesses to lie against Stephen. Not men from among themselves, but men outside of the group of the Sanhedrin. And so later in life, even Paul himself confesses as a believer his ungodly tactics. And he tells us those tactics in, in Acts 25. He says, Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. So Paul is confessing that he himself was a part of this wicked plan to slander and deceive in order to punish these Christians. So what was the, what was the slander? Well, they came forward and they said, this man has spoken against Moses and against God. He has blasphemed. Blasphemy is simply speaking evil of something that God deems sacred. And so he's saying something evil about what God has said is good and sacred. Interesting, the word order tells us something about the, the Sanhedrin. They list Moses first. May not mean a lot in, in English literature, but in Jewish literature, word order was very significant. And if a name was listed first, that meant that they were preeminent. So in a family line, you listed the most preeminent one first, and then it went on down the line. And here they're listing Moses, preeminent over even God himself. That's how tightly woven they were to the law and to the, uh, to the commands and, and, um, and lifestyle that Moses had handed down to them. And so they accused them of blasphemy, which, by the way, was the very same accusation that they brought against Jesus Christ. Why did he say he was blaspheming? Because he claimed himself to be God. You can't get around it. Jesus claimed to be God. And now Stephen is preaching a gospel that claims that Jesus is God, and so they're accusing him of blasphemy. So verse 12 tells us that, that the Sanhedrin themselves stirred up the people. It means to incite to riot. That's what it means. So here we've got godly leaders, the spiritual leaders of Israel who are stirring up the people who are a part of the religious leadership of Israel and they're stirring them up to riot and to incite them against an innocent man named Stephen. As I was reading this, I was reminded of Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19. And in that text, it says that there's six things that the Lord hates, seven things that are detestable to him. And see if these seven things don't sound a little bit like our crew of Sanhedrin in this text. Number one, they had haughty eyes, just real prideful. Number two, a lying tongue. Number three, hands that shed innocent blood, which they're on the doorstep of doing. Number four, a heart that devises wicked schemes. Number five, feet that are quick to rush into evil. Number six, a false witness who pours out lies. And number seven, a man who stirs up dissension among the brothers. And I read this and I thought, well, this is a perfect description of exactly what the Sanhedrin is doing. They're doing all six of these things, all seven, and God hates it. And one thing I want to share with you is that, you know, I love being the pastor of this church. And it's not because I'm the pastor. I just love being a part of this church. I feel so blessed and so honored, and I share that with you every once in a while. But I, as I look at you and I'm here and I'm, I'm having this honor of sharing the word of God this morning, I'm thinking it is such an honor to be not only able to serve the Lord as we're all able to serve together, but it's also such an honor to be in a church where I'm looking at this and this text of Proverbs 6 and I just don't see it in our church. And I want to say thank you because I know that even in that, we're all exercising courage to do the right thing when sometimes we're tempted to do the wrong thing. 
but I just don't see these things happening in the fellowship. And that's a, that's a tribute to God and the work of the Holy Spirit, but it tells me so much about the kind of men and women that God is making you. And I just want to say thank you because it makes the whole experience so much more joyful for me and for the leadership of this church and for you as well. And so we're all guarding and protecting something here that's precious to God and precious to us. But these men didn't consider the unity of the body precious enough and they stirred up people against Stephen and they seized him and brought him before the Sanhedrin and they produced these false witnesses whom they'd hired to testify against him in verse 13. And they said he never stops speaking against this place, a reference to the temple, and he never stops speaking against the law. Now, this was simply a twisting of Stephen's words because I can tell you, even though we don't have the content of his message, I can tell you what he was saying. He was saying this temple is a foreshadowing of Christ in us, the hope of glory, his spirit now dwelling in the hearts of men. And he was saying about the law that the law has fulfilled its purpose. It was to draw us to Christ. It was to bring us to the end of ourselves. It was to help us examine and understand that apart from Christ, we are hopelessly sinners doomed to judgment. But God, through Christ, has now fulfilled every purpose of the law and the penalty has been paid. Therefore, anyone in Christ has been set free from the law as we walk in the Spirit. We don't have to worry about keeping the 613 regulations of the Old Testament because the Spirit in us desires and craves to do what honors the Lord. And he teaches us as we're full of him and full of faith and full of the word and full of loving kindness, and full of power, the Christian life that we're to lead. And so Stephen is preaching this message, and, and so they twist his words and say, he's against the temple, and he's against the law. And on both counts, they were wrong. But for that accusation, the men of the Sanhedrin were willing to attempt and finally to put him to death. They did get one thing right, though, about Stephen in the midst of their lies, because Stephen said, or the, the Sanhedrin said, these false witnesses say, this guy won't shut up. You know, this guy just keeps talking and talking and talking. It doesn't matter what threats we bring to him. It doesn't matter how we intimidate him. It doesn't matter the psychological warfare we throw on this guy. It doesn't matter the stress he's under. It doesn't matter the pressure that we put on him. This guy will not stop. And so in that, they were right. And in that, we have another evidence of this courage of this man named Stephen. This guy would not stop for anybody because he'd been given a commission. He'd been given a calling. Here's an application for us this morning. You're already courageous men and women. And I want to encourage you to be even more courageous by not stopping, not giving up. Don't give up on your marriage. Don't give up on your kids. Don't give up on your boss. Don't give up on your parents. Don't give up on your grandparents. Don't give up on your aunties and uncles. Don't ever give up on your neighbors. Don't ever, ever give up on someone that you're having an argument with or you have a disagreement with. Don't ever, ever quit. Don't ever stop. Don't ever give in. Don't ever give up and don't ever give ground. That's courage. And that's what Stephen is. He's a man of incredible courage. He just will not stop. Well, they went on to accuse him as well of speaking the words of Jesus that Jesus would destroy the temple which was a lie. Jesus never said he would destroy the temple. The Bible tells us in Matthew 24 what Jesus said. He said, I tell you the truth, not one stone will be left on top of another. This temple will be destroyed. 
but it was a prophecy. It wasn't something that Jesus said he wanted to do. It's something that God was going to do because of the rebellion of Israel. But they ascribed to Jesus a twisting of his words and saying that Jesus wanted to destroy the foundation of Judaism, that Jesus wanted to destroy their faith, that Jesus wanted to destroy the law, and these things were not true. Why would they make accusations like this? Well, because I think that, that Stephen was teaching that Jesus was greater than Moses, that Jesus was greater than the temple, that Jesus was the fulfillment of the law, that Jesus was greater than their religious customs and traditions. And rather than being willing to see Jesus as the fulfillment of every good promise that had been made to mankind, they were threatened. By the way, one of the reasons why Stephen, I think, was so effective and so powerful and so courageous is that he had nothing to lose because he'd already been promised everything by Christ. He has an inheritance. He's already seated in the heavenly places with Christ. He's already a citizen of the kingdom. He's already been adopted. He's been made a friend of God. He's going to rule and reign with God forever. So what can you do to a guy that's got everything? and has the hope of everything and the promise of everything. And so, like Jesus, who was very courageous, talking about courage, Jesus was the epitome of courage. And he had nothing to lose because he knew that he would rise from the dead and he would be in the presence of the Father again. And in the same way, there's very little that you can do to a man who is absolutely, or a woman, who is absolutely convinced in the word of God and the power of God, and the love of God, and the faithfulness of God, and the future that God promises to those that trust him. Well, something happens very interesting in verse 15. Because as they're arguing, and as there's this chaotic debate going on, and as these liars are in there falsely accusing Stephen, and as Stephen is simply answering their questions, and I believe that he answered the questions with the word of God. He'd go to the Old Testament, to the prophets, to the, to the poetry, to the writings, to the prophecies in the Old Testament, to the Pentateuch, and he just kept answering with loving kindness, gently instructing the Sanhedrin again and again and refuting their arguments, and they couldn't stand up and they, against his arguments or the spirit by which he was speaking, and so they became angrier and angrier and angrier, and all of a sudden somebody said, look, and Stephen, the Bible says, at this point, they looked at him intently. It means that they fastened their gaze on him. I mean, they were so, it, it means that you, you just can't stop looking at someone. That's the context of this word in the Greek. It's just you, you fasten your eyes on them and the whole group of 70 plus people just stared at him. Why? Because they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, I want to clear up something. We're not talking about, you know, uh, some chubby little cherub kind of look on his face, you know, that he, he was looking like, you know, uh, you know that, nothing like that, you know. Sometimes we have in our, in our mind this, this, this idea of what an angel looks like, but in the Bible, it tells us what angels look like. They're these glorious creatures, and when we see them in their manifested power and presence, they, they're just radiant. They're glowing with the, with the glory and Shekinah presence of God on them. So we're not talking about, you know, the angel that looks like a guy or like a man or like a woman or some feminine little pasty white guy, you know. But we're talking about a glorious, radiant appearing that came over the countenance of Stephen. Probably Stephen himself didn't even know what occurred. Why did this happen? Well, very interesting. Because the, the stake to claim, the, the guarding, the protecting, the, the aggressiveness all came from the Sanhedrin because they thought they had to defend their man. Who was their man? Moses and the law, the old covenant. 
the only other man who ever glowed and had this, this radiance on his countenance that we have in the word of God besides Jesus Christ or the angels was Moses. And so God, in essence, brings a stinging rebuke in the very midst of this chaotic courtroom experience for Stephen, and God manifests his approval and his grace and his favor on Stephen and just lets the guy glow right in front of him. And what God is saying, and they recognized it right away, being Jewish scholars that they were, that as God signified his approval of the Ten Commandments and all the covenant that went along with it of the Old Covenant, now he was giving his approval to Stephen and saying, this man is my man. This man experiences the power of God. This man is my ambassador. Listen to his words as you listen to Moses' words. Now, I'd like to tell you that, that you're going to glow this week like that, you know, because I think that'd be cool, you know, to just all of a sudden light up and it's like, hey, that's, a, you know, hey, the guy became a Christian and yeah, he got the gift of, man, his countenance was like an angel, you know, he just lit up on fire. I mean, wouldn't it be nice to know that somebody came to Christ and it was genuine because it was like a light switch went on and they just start, you know, it's like, you know, like a fluorescent light. You know, that would be so wonderful in so many ways that they had the gift of light. Yeah, they got the gift of light, you know. Uh, okay, well, then they're, then they're a believer. But, uh, but what I can tell you is that it's unlikely that any of us are going to glow with that same kind of Shekinah glory, the presence of God, having had an encounter with God in that way. But I will tell you this, is that the Bible says that you will glow. You will radiate the presence of God. And let me read a couple of scriptures to you. And the way that we radiate that glory is simply by being in the presence of God. When you have encounters with God, your countenance changes. Your life changes. Your views change. Your priorities change. Your heart changes. And you begin to be filled up with the things that honor God. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And we who with unveiled faces, unveiled a reference to Moses, in the presence of God. He had the veil. He'd take it off of his head when he was in the presence of God. And so that's what it's a reference to. Like Moses, with unveiled faces, having these face-to-face encounters with God, all reflect the Lord's glory. We're being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. Isn't this wonderful? I mean, I'm excited about this. I'm, I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, what an incredible gift that God is giving us because we may never glow exactly like Moses did or exactly like Stephen, but God says we're going to glow in a very special way as we have encounters with God with ever-increasing glory. Psalm 37 tells us how we can experience it. He says, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will do this. He will make your righteousness like the gleam of dawn and the justice of your cause like the noonday sun. Isn't that wonderful? Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him. This is, what, this is the foundation of Stephen's life. He was full of faith, full of confidence in God. And the result was is that the Bible says that your righteousness will shine like the morning dawn, that gleaming, that countenance, the change in your life, and the justice of your cause like the noonday sun. Courage. The Christian life takes courage, but it's... It's something that is required for every aspect of life. Sometimes just coming to church on Sunday morning is an act of courage. Sometimes humbling yourself and admitting you are wrong, that's an act of courage. Going before someone and asking their forgiveness, an act of courage. Doing not what's expedient but what is right is an act of courage. Preaching the gospel is an act of courage. Standing for Christ and not being ashamed of him 
is an act of courage. These are all acts of courage. Staying in your marriage, no matter how difficult it might be, is an act of courage. God wants to make you into a man or woman of courage. The Bible tells us that um, over and over, God actually is calling for men and women to step up to the plate in terms of this issue of courage. In um, Deuteronomy chapter 24 and also in Joshua 1.8, he tells us that we need to be men and women of courage. He says, be strong and courageous. When he's talking to Joshua in Joshua 1.8, the, the message to him is, Joshua, be strong and courageous. You need to be strong and courageous to accomplish what I'm calling you to do. Interestingly, at the end of that same chapter in Joshua 1.8, the people said, hey, as we followed Moses, we'll follow you. Only be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. And then 2 Corinthians, Paul speaks, and he says, be men of courage and be strong. You're already evidencing it. I'm inspired by your lives. I get so blessed when you share what God is doing in your life and how you're walking with him and the, the hurdles you've overcome and the faith you're evidencing and the, the witnessing you're doing and the bringing of friends to this fellowship. I'm inspired by that. I want to be inspiring to you as well. I want us to inspire each other and it happens as we're full of faith, as we're full of the Holy Spirit, as we're full of loving kindness, and as we're full of power. And all of that comes from God as we put our trust in him. So I'm challenging you this morning to be courageous. As that phrase says, no guts, no glory. And there's some truth to it even in the spiritual dimension. And so I'm encouraging you, I'm exhorting you to live a gutty life. I'm encouraging you to be courageous. Incrementally, you don't have to be Stephen. Just take the steps that God has put in front of you this morning for the things even the Holy Spirit's put on your heart and be courageous. Don't fear, your God is with you. God will never leave you and God will never forsake you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this morning and for your word. Father, it's just been a real joy for me to, to share this message and to uh, communicate it to my friends and to your sons and daughters. And I'm praying, God, that you would work in our lives this morning. And I, and I want to take just a moment and have you open your eyes again. It could be that there's someone here this morning that uh, you've never taken that step to, to give your life to Christ. That, that's the beginning. You know how we talked about Stephen full of faith? the first act of faith in a person's life is to say, I have sinned. That's a courageous act. To say, I need God. That's a courageous act. To say, I want you to have my life. I want you to lead my life. That's a courageous act. And possibly for someone here today, you've never taken that step. And I just want to give you an opportunity. Is there anyone here that would like to say, I want to be courageous in this arena. I want to have a relationship with God. I would like to be forgiven of my sins. And I would like to be filled with God, filled with faith, and filled with the Spirit this morning. Is there anyone? You've never done that before. I just want you to raise your hands right where you are. Anyone here, you've never received Christ, but you'd like to be courageous this morning and to commit yourself to him. Is there anyone that doesn't know the Lord and you'd like to do that today? Okay, anyone here? Okay, I'm trusting that we all know the Lord. I want to give the rest of you an opportunity. And this is just for you and God. But if there's something the Lord has put on your heart from this message that you want to stand up and be courageous, I just want you to raise your hands right where you are. That there's some areas in your life where you know you need the courage. You want more power. You want to be filled up more than ever before. I'm raising my hands with you. Okay. Father, you see these hands this morning and you see mine as well. And we come to you and we cry out to you and we say, God, we know that we don't have it in us. <laughs> but we know that you have it. And we know that you can give it to us. And so, Father, I pray that you'd fill us up with faith, 
that you'd fill us up with your spirit, that you'd fill us up with loving kindness, and that you'd fill us with power, that we might live lives of courage this week. And we want to say thank you and declare our love to you and our devotion to your purposes and our desire to bring you maximum praise and glory in these days that we live. And we pray it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen.